No Directions Gen Con 2019 seminar coverage is brought to you by Roll for Combat's new Fall of Plaguestone Pathfinder 2e actual play podcast. Featuring Stephen Glicker, Jason McDonald, Rob Tremarco, and No Directions own Lauren Sig and Vanessa Hoskins. Find it and other Pathfinder and Starfinder podcasts, interviews, and reviews at RollForCombat.com. No Direction presents our Gen Con 2019 seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. We'd like to thank our seminar team, Lauren Sieg, James Ballad, Vanessa Hoskins, and me, Jefferson J. Thacker, also known as Param. We'd also like to thank Peyton Smith from Paizo for helping getting this produced. This content and more great seminar coverage, as well as Pathfinder and Starfinder content, is available at NoDirectionPodcast.com. Hi, and welcome to the Secrets of the Pact Worlds panel. Um, I am Rob McCrary, the creative director for Starfinder. On my right... I'm Amanda Hammond, the managing developer for Starfinder. And on my left... Uh, I'm Jason Keeley, a developer working primarily on the Starfinder Adventure Pads. So the secrets of the Pact Worlds, um, woo, yeah, um, where this is kind of mainly, we're not going to just divulge a whole lot of secrets um, <laughs> because there are some secrets that are secrets, but we're happy to answer questions and everything. I will say um, we're not going to say what happened during the gap or why there is a gap and everything. That's one of the core mysteries of the setting that we'll probably never answer. Um, or like what happened to Galarian, um, we're not going to answer that. Or how long the gap was. <laughs> These are all kind of mysteries that are that are part of the setting. Um, but we're happy to talk about anything else. And of course, the Pact Worlds is the core of our setting, um, but there's a whole galaxy that we have to play around with, so we don't have to only talk about the Pact Worlds. We can talk about everything else in the setting or, or Starfinder in general. Um, since this is Secrets of the Pact Worlds, though, um, Amanda, do you have a favorite Pact World? Oh, um, I have to say it's probably Eox, the land of the dead, which I know is a huge surprise. <laughs> but uh, but I, I really like I really like the subtle sort of nuanced changes that have taken place to undead um, creatures in Starfinder. Undead creatures aren't necessarily always evil. Um, there's an entire planet of them. Uh, there certainly are um, parts of that planet that are very evil with the corpse fleet that's broken away from the Pact Worlds, and um, they don't agree with you know. Uh, dealing with those filthy living creatures, but um, that the Pact Worlds uh, are getting along with Eox, and the Eox is really trying to um, be kind of assimilated with them and create good relations. I think it's just a really interesting narrative um, piece that we play with in our setting. How about you? Do you have a favorite Pact World or uh, some? Yes, part, part of the Pact Worlds, I would say. I think uh, the thing I probably uh, enjoy playing with the most is the, the Diaspora. The uh, asteroid belt uh, that was once two planets that was destroyed by evil, evil Eox. Ooh! <laughs> I'll get you in one day, Amanda. Um, <laughs> and it's got a whole bunch of... it can Because it, it can have a whole bunch of weird stuff in there, and we have uh, you know, a, a giant river that runs through the whole thing. We've got, you know, uh, an ice kind of moon in the middle of it. We've got pirates, space pirates there. Yar. And um, just, you know, lots of good stuff. I'm a fan of Absalom Station, which is the big space station that's in the orbit of where the planet Galarian used to be, just because there's all these mysteries about that, like who, who built it, how did it get there, what happened to the planet, and then also it's got the Star Stone as the reactor in the middle of it that powers it, and I don't know if you can ever actually get to it, might turn you into a god the way it does on Galarian and Pathfinder, so that's one of the things that I like. Um, 
Yeah. Any secrets anyone wants to divulge or should we go straight to questions? We do have a secret we will divulge in a little while, but let's get some questions first. Anybody have any questions about the Pact Worlds or the setting or Starfinder? Uh, Pathfinder, Formian race had a strong planar tie. I believe they originally came from Tannis. Do the, mm. do the Formians of Castorvale still have those planar ties? I don't think that we kept the planar ties in in Pathfinder yeah. um, because the actual, the Formians, and Eric Mona is the one who really knows about this. There's some pulp story back in the day that talks about these, and that's what we always tried to base our things on. Uh, our Formians on, so we've pretty much gotten away with that, and particularly in Starfinder, it's they're not only on Castrovel. Um, we we we've kind of I don't know if we've done it yet, but we're, we're we've been kind of like seeding them around, and they're primarily in the pack roles, definitely on Castrovel, but we don't really have much of a of a planar connection for them anymore. They're just a big insectoid race. Yeah, you okay. might meet uh, one or two Formians in the Attack of the Swarm Adventure Path as uh, NPCs. Yeah. But people in general are pretty big uh, yeah. in our setting, at least right now, right, Jason? They sure are. <laughs> they have, like, six playable bug species. It's really least. just because Jason wanted to be able to GM and go, eee! the whole time. <laughs> you got me. Um, and I do have a question, and hopefully I'm not divulging any secret information. I did see it on the website. Um, as far – I was here at Gen Con last year, actually, and I you had mentioned something about making new classes – um, and I think the operations manual that's coming out in November is part of that. Um, how did you guys come up with those classes, and are you, do you have any future plans for more classes? Ooh. Good question. Go for it. You want me to take it? Yeah. All right. Um, so you have kind of just hit the nail on the head. One of the, um, the early ways that we developed the concept for the classes was that we really specifically wanted these classes to live and take place and come organically from Starfinder, from the setting. Um, we wanted them to be uh, broken away from any other game that has influenced Starfinder or that it came from, certainly from Pathfinder and in the way that the core classes uh, are sort of analogs, um, except for the Solarian with a, a very specific you know, type of Pathfinder class, like the Envoy is very much like a space bard, operative is like a space rogue. We really wanted to get away from that and make something that's very, very uniquely Starfinder. So the three new classes, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with them, are the biohacker, uh, which is a buffer debuffer, um, all about uh, messing with the physiological nature of uh, creatures around them, allies and enemies. Uh, that's one class. The second class is the vanguard, which is a uh, tank class that ha that harnesses the power of entropy, uh, draws it toward him and uh, or her, and will uh, absorb that energy, be able to take a lot of damage, and um, be able to project that outward in cool, interesting ways and abilities to uh, deal damage on the front lines. Uh, the third class is the Witch Warper, which is a charisma-based spellcaster, and the Witch Warper is all about the scientific theory of infinite worlds, um, has a main class feature called Infinite Worlds, and is about... Um, pulling an uh, understanding that there are infinite realities and um, pulling little details from other realities and transposing them into uh, their own reality. And so doing cool things like shifting the terrain, uh, changing little uh, tiny details about uh, creatures or bad guys, 
um, shifting like positions because you know in the next adjacent reality, Jason is actually on the other side of the convention center. Oh, so no. Therefore, he's no longer a threat to me. Ha, ha Jason. Um, so uh, I'll get you, Amanda. <laughs> I'll get you one day. <laughs> so um, one of those. Uh, so all of those classes are, are very uniquely from the the core kind of concepts of Starfinder. You know that's um, that there's a lot of science in Starfinder with Biohacker, which Jason um, wrote originally. Uh, that uh, would allow uh, characters to be able to manipulate creatures and things like that and make little concoctions and injections and um, do cool things based on that concept. We took that concept and put those into mechanics. Same thing with a vanguard. You know, the entropy of the exist of existence is very big in space. Uh, you know, it uh, creates and destroys entire planets and solar systems. And so, there's a character who kind of understands that and is able to manipulate that mechanically. And same thing with the witch warper about infinite realities and, and worlds. So, um, we we were very excited to pull those concepts into Starfinder. As to whether there'll be new classes in the future, I, I mean, this is the first time we've done new classes outside of the core rulebook, so um, that, that took us about two years. So, you know, we'll see if there's demand for it. And, like, we'll, we'll start in the other products, we'll start to see vanguards and witch warpers and biohackers appearing as NPCs and that kind of stuff. Um, it's a bit early to say whether we'll do more, but I would, certainly wouldn't, wouldn't uh, be surprised. Out, yeah. I, I wouldn't completely rule it out if we did yeah. some more classes in the future. So something that I've seen up seem come up quite a bit is the discussion of the drives used for travel being a non-sustainable resource because it pulls from reality. Do the characters within the packed worlds are they also aware of this uh, concept, or is it something that's just not really in their mind? And are there people opposed to using the engines because of this non-renewable resource type um, energy? That's an interesting question because it's, I think that really boils down to how renewable is that? Because every time you go into the drift, for just a quick explanation, that's our hyperspace dimension, it pulls a piece of another plane into the drift. The multiverse is huge and many of those planes are effectively infinite and are actually continue to grow every day. So is it really not renewable? That is kind of a, a question. I think that in terms of people in the setting, how much they know about that. I think you can kind of maybe relate it to here on Earth. It's like how many people like know exactly how an internal combustion engine or a jet engine works. You know, it's like they know it works and they know it takes them somewhere, but they don't know all the science behind it. So I think there would be probably some of that that people are just like, no, we just go into the drift. Everything's fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> probably like the actual, you know, mechanics and engineers that are working on them know, know about that kind of stuff. And I don't know. We haven't really said much about that. I think there could be small groups, but... I feel like, if not, if there isn't one, I, I excised it from a turnover at some point. There's somebody who, who a group that would be like, no, we don't want to, because of all the planar stuff, uh, perhaps in the Drift article, there might be a, mention, a brief mention, just the briefest of mentions of, of people who, who oppose it on moral grounds. But of course, one of the interesting things about it is the drift engines were given to the galaxy by the god Triune, which means it's kind of, I mean, Triune owns that technology or, or basically knows about that technology. And it's not clear whether Triune discovered the drift or created the drift. Could Triune take that away from everyone? So there are certainly other religious factions that don't trust that. We've talked about okay. some of the other drives that other things use, you know, like Iomidaeans have some planar drives that they just pop into heaven and then back to the material plane and avoid the drift altogether. I think the, do the Velstrax have some different? Yeah, the shadow, well, the Kuthites. The uh, the Kuthites have, yeah, have shadow, shadow drives, drives that go into the shadow plane. Essentially so shadow jump. There is certainly, everyone is not comfortable using the drift, certainly. Yeah. Uh, we have a question from Twitch chat from Dungeon Novice. 
Where are Torag and Robogog? <laughs> Where indeed? Where indeed? That's I guess that's one of those secrets because Rovagug in Pathfinder was imprisoned within Galarian, and Galarian is missing. So, so draw your own conclusions. Where is Rovagug in <laughs> yes. Torag? Yeah, that might be something, uh, well, where are? an interesting segue into a point that uh, maybe we want to discuss, uh, is that sort of the scope of um, what the core deities are in Starfinder is a lot different than the scope of what they are in Pathfinder, and so the differences in how we determined uh, which gods were the main core deities in Starfinder based on Pathfinder, sort of the difference between uh, what's the most popular on one planet versus what's the most popular in the entire galaxy, and then that looks very different because there's a whole Vescarium, for example, that worships Demoratosh, and so nobody on Galarian knows what Demoratosh is. Of course, that's not in Galarian, that sort of thing. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you updated some of the um, Galarian gods and like elevated, for example, Besmara up to a core deity? Yeah, so like Amanda was saying, we were trying, we wanted to create a new core 20 deities for Starfinder. And again, looking at the whole thing, it's like, well, Galarian, obviously Pathfinder, Galarian is the center of everything. We did kind of center them on the Pact Worlds, but, and, but because we're talking about a, a setting that has a whole galaxy, of course, you could go to different places in the galaxy and they'd worship completely different gods. And so that also allowed us to do is like, well, if we removed a god from between Pathfinder and Starfinder, it's not that that god is actually gone, with the exception of Torag and Rovagug, um, but <laughs> it's just that they're not as popular anymore. You know, I, it could be that Caden Kalian passed out during the gap and he just hasn't woken up yet, and that's why no one's really worshiping him anymore. But so there were some obvious things like um, Saren Ray, she's the goddess of the sun. The sun is still the sun, so she'd probably still be a, a major goddess. Phrasma is mm -hmm. the goddess of birth and death and prophecy. And it's like, well, everybody is, I mean, she's kind of the death god for the entire universe. So she's in there. Um, then I wanted to make sure that we had all these new species, all these new races, that there was at least one god that was associated with each of the, the new races. So the Vesk have Demoratosh, the Kasathas have Talavet, uh, the Lashuntas have... Got to remember everybody. It's what's her name? Yuresa um, and uh, yeah. the Yasoki have Lao Shu Pose. That was one that we brought yeah. up because that's one from Tian Sha, our Asian analog in Pathfinder. And so it's like, well, she's the grandmother rat. That would be kind of a good thing for, well, not necessarily good because she's evil, but. <laughs> and then it was just kind of fun, like looking at some other gods to sort of elevate to the sort of major status. And so Besmara, who's a relatively minor goddess of piracy and sea monsters in Pathfinder, I was like, well, there's like space and there's space pirates and there's space monsters. So she kind of got up because everyone, I don't know, everyone, everyone who goes in space and gets attacked by pirates or is afraid of getting attacked by some giant space amoeba might give some kind of, you know, yeah. offering to Besmara for protection. So yeah. Plus her holy symbol looks really cool on the side of a space. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then we just wanted to create just some brand new gods that kind of were <clears throat> science fiction. And so that's like where Oris, the god of evolution, and sort of that's all about genetics and how life evolves. That's a very scientific concept. So kind of marrying that with religion was one way to, to do that. Um, <clears throat> there's another seminars you talked about how... Uh, the planar access is less played up than it is in, say, Pathfinder. Mm. Is that more of a mechanical choice where you want to play up the science nature of the setting, a story choice where people just don't do as many planar things, or leave it to the... If, if the local groups are really interested in that, let them. That's a, that's a good question, too. It's interestingly, like, as, as we have... As we talked about, that Galarian is gone and that the gap has sort of 
separated everything. But the, the multiverse is, is still the same. Uh, the great beyond is still the same. So you had hell back in the past in Pathfinder. Hell is still around in the future. Um, so in a weird way, those have probably changed the least. Um, and so we have kind of played around with that a little bit. But that is also more of a fantasy concept that we've explored a lot in in Pathfinder. And I won't say that we, we won't. We've already had some planar stuff. We've yeah. gone to the Shadow Plane and Signal of Screams. Um, there's a bunch of Plane of Fire stuff mm -hmm. in, in Dawn of Flame. Mm -hmm. But it, it's also just in terms of not everyone has played Pathfinder, or not everyone that plays Starfinder has played Pathfinder. And so those who have, we figured it would be relatively easy for them to sort of bring that content in. Right now, we want to spend time developing the, the setting of Starfinder and creating a whole bunch of stuff on the planes when we already have this huge galaxy to talk about is sort of a lower priority because we can kind of tease these things and bring them in and mention, you know, we do, there is a short little section of the core rulebook talking about the great beyond mm -hmm. and saying, hey, there's these other planes that exist, but that that really expands the scope of the setting if we, if we go deeply into that. And I don't know, you know, as we go forward and more, as we do more and more stuff, we might eventually detail more of how those things have changed. But we basically just tried to hint at it with like, oh, here's the, Barakius angel that we right. put in Alien mm -hmm. Archive, and it's got guns because you know that's what angels in the future would have, apparently. Yeah. And it's a, and, and it's a it's an angel of like computer technology in a lot of ways too. So yeah, we'll update those 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 planar beings. Uh, I think we've got like a, a hacker devil in Dawn of Flame, or in the, what's called a Flashfire demon at some point that uh, is a, basically a sabotagey kind of demon. Um, you know, so yeah. This, uh, the Tridadar, uh, no, uh, yeah, the Tridadar Azata, who looks really cool in sci-fi with space wings and stuff like that. So, yeah, again, with, uh, as as we as we see fit uh, for stories and whatnot, we'll we'll bring that stuff in. So I understand not being able to be given any specifics about this question, but uh, the packed worlds are relatively densely packed together uh, in comparison to the rest of uh, a galaxy or a universe. When looking at adding in additional like setting books similar to the Pact Worlds Guide, are we going to be seeing similar clusters of planets, or are we thinking about spreading everything out a bit more across the galaxy? Rob, are so, you thinking about this? So, so we, <laughs> mentioned, we mentioned in the last panel how, how our setting is kind of divided. Um, so for those of you who aren't super familiar, we have the Pact Worlds, which is this one solar system. That's kind of the... It's our home base. Our home base or the, the metaphorical center of our setting. And then you can divide the galaxy into two other regions, near space and the vast, based on how easy they are to get to or the density of drift beacons. Uh, the more drift beacons there are, the easier it is to get to, so those become near space. If there's fewer drift beacons, it takes longer to get there, and that's considered the vast. Uh, we did a Pact Worlds book soon after, uh, within a year of the release of Starfinder, that... Um, kind of detailed all of the worlds in the Pact Worlds, um, which is great for all the humans and the Shuntas and Yosokis that live in the Pact Worlds. One of our core races is the Vesk. They come from their own place called the Vescarium, which is located in near space, which we haven't said anything about that, um, but we will next year. Um, in March, we're releasing a near space book, which is going to, a significant portion of that is going to be about the Vescarium, which is, again, an entire solar system that the Vesk have controlled and have originally named, renamed everything after themselves. <laughs> so, what's the difference between Vesk three and Vesk six? Vesk six is farther away, you know. But um, so there's a there's a big there's a big section about the Vescarium and all of the planets in the Vescarium, and then um, there's going to be uh, a bunch of other planets that you can be in near space. Some of them. You want to talk about some of the other planets? 
The oh, some like, of the other planets. Or like where we space. where we got those. Oh yeah, so um, we pulled uh, a lot. Well, actually, every planet that is mentioned in the core rulebook, there's a section called "Beyond the Pact Worlds." That's after the big Pact Worlds write up in the setting chapter, and they are these column long write ups of um, planets that uh, everybody actually who wrote that was an internal um, staff member at Paizo at the mm -hmm. time, yeah. and so everybody just was able to come up with their own cool world. And the only parameters were just make this interesting, uh, make this something uh, that's alien, and make this uh, something that you know you think that there could be lots of cool adventures on um, and they really came through I want to say that section is is really interesting in the core rule book um, I'm a little bit biased because I got to develop it but I really love a lot of the planets the ideas are, are super cool um, that's out there and so uh, we assigned um, uh, writers to in some cases the original writers to expand on those planets in near space and I think each of those planets has does it have two pages or four pages or something like that something like that. I think it's I four know. pages yeah so some pretty extensive information about them that uh, is all about uh, their culture and their governments and their ecologies and then sections of gazetteers so there's and I think do they no, they don't have a map, um, but they've got uh, little like write-ups about each of the little like cities and towns and places of interest um, and nations and just whatever's appropriate uh, on those planets. And they're not all planets. I keep saying planets, but some of them are uh, celestial bodies. Right. Yeah. Or some of it, there's a nebula that's out there. There's, there's... a there's a small uh, collective, the yeah, one of the, or maybe even two uh, that were uh, I think both taken from Starfinder Society. Uh, oh so, yes, yeah. the scoured oh, yeah. stars, for example, uh, are in there. Are they? Oh, the, no, the scoured stars are in the vast. Oh no, no it's, okay. the, it's the Gitteron Authority and the Marixa oh, Republic right. are going to be right. detailed in in that. And also, the, there's some there's some just new stuff that has never been talked about before. Yeah. So yeah. the answer to the question is yes. I think we will start getting into some, both the more densely packed solar systems like the Vescarium, but also more and probably you know if people like this near space book, well, there's still the vast. So we'll probably eventually at some point <laughs> maybe do a vast book. But that's not an announcement, um, by the way. <laughs> yeah. We'll be talking a little bit more about the near space book in our. Paizo 2019 panel yeah. or Paizo 2019 and beyond panel this afternoon. But when is that, Rob? Do you remember? It's this afternoon at four. Four. Okay. I think. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, I have a question about the androids in the awakening process. How does that usually go? Do you just like fall down and hope a spirit finds you, or do you find like a nice uh, tomb or something? There's an entire uh, there's an entire cultural practice about that. You want to talk a little more? than I do. <laughs> no. No. That's something we haven't really explored, to be perfectly honest. I don't think we've written much about it at all. Um, we did in Pathfinder a little bit. Oh, okay. But, but the androids in Pathfinder are different from the yes. androids in Starfinder. Yeah. Um, I mean, I like to think that it's probably... Uh, I mean, if you know that it is coming, yeah. uh, you don't get killed in battle or whatever, it's most likely some some kind of small ceremony, yeah. maybe a, a bit of a wake or a, or a solemn funeral, depending on your friends and your personality um, and then you just lay down I guess and go to sleep and then wake up with a new soul inside of you yeah but then you would actually be different because yes yes you you are not you is, yes. the, is the soul I mean one of the one of the things we've tried to do in Starfinder is for the sorts of things about like particularly class abilities and some racial abilities is not super define everything because we want people to be able to make the character that they want and have a cool story behind it so it's when you're dealing with a sort of life and death and the souls, there is some stuff that really that that is kind of hard coded into the into the setting and everything. But like exactly how that process goes, I I would rather leave that to the players so they can come up with a cool idea for their character. And it's the it's the same thing with your various class abilities and everything. It's like whether or not you have an implant that lets you do that, or you studied in some alien monastery, or you know, it, 
that doesn't really matter. What matters is you have that ability and you can tell the stories that you want to tell about that. So I think this kind of fits into that as well. If, yeah. if we ever get around to sort of updating or bringing in psychopomps to uh, oh, Starfinder, cool. it'd be cool to have a psychopomp that is the psychopomp of making sure a soul gets a new soul gets into a real awakened android body. Yeah, that is a good idea. I just had cool. it, and I, cool. I did, oh. I'm going to forget it by the end of this con. <laughs> I'm sure. Psychopomp. Android psychopomp. Uh, I have a question that's kind of more about society lore than Pact World's lore, but mm. uh, Guidance, who's kind of like the spiritual anchor of the society, mm. described as like a gestalt hive mind, but we don't really know a lot about it considering how important it is. Does it like, when you get uploaded into Guidance, is that like a destructive process that kills the person getting uploaded? Does their soul get to go live in the server farm like the Matrix, or <laughs> is it like a copy-paste situation? And like, considering what's going on with Guidance, does it have any kind of divine power like is it like a minor demigod or something like that that's a good question we we tend to leave that for for our for um that kind of stuff to be developed in society play because obviously in starfinder society are the ones interacting with that even though guidance exists in the in, in the full game and stuff i don't know that we've fully defined exactly what it is my my concept of guidance is that it's not it's not that your soul is going in there it's more like just a copy of your of your your mind and your brain and everything so i think that a lot of the people whose personalities and consciousness were uploaded into guidance are now dead just because of the time it's not that their soul is there and i don't think i don't think that it's like it's certainly not something that's like demigod status um because i mean for one thing sort of like the machine god we've already done that with triune and so it's to me, at least, it's less interesting that there would be something else like that. That's not to say that something couldn't develop that way in the future. But we've also been really careful with how we deal with like artificial intelligence in general because um, we had talked a lot when we were working on the game. It's like whether we wanted to have starships to have artificial intelligences and actually like be characters and everything. And we're like, well, that's kind of weird because if the players are flying around in this starship and the starship doesn't get to say what it wants to do, you're basically enslaving a sapient thing and so we we wanted to be very careful that like the ais you can get on a ship are really just personality emulators they're not truly intelligent artificial yeah. truly intelligent intelligence i don't know yeah, yeah. so that's Those the are, kind of thing we would virtual basically. virtual intelligence we call yeah. it a virtual personalities right yeah just big alexas flying in the sky very sure uh, so we have a question from Twitch chat from Cthulhu was tasty. Are there any named prisoners on the prison planet Dagox Four? Ooh, that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> I, can we? Should we say that that that's? We can say. It. Okay. That's okay, that's one of the that's one of the uh, the the near space. It's yeah. going to be in, in near space. Yes. And I don't know. I haven't read the turnover or, or any if anyone has did has checked them? it yet. Yeah, yeah. Amanda, <laughs> Amanda, Amanda knows. Okay. I did. Yes, that was written by Adam Daigle, who's a managing developer for Pathfinder, and, and originally wrote the um, little write up in the Pact World. So, hmm, named prisoners. So there's uh, some specifics about what type of prisoners are in what uh, sections of the planet. The entire prison planet is not just one sort of cell block row. There's um, some specific differences and, you know, it, there's, it's run by a corporation. So it's very monetary based who's where um, and, you know, which entities work with the corporation to have prisoners put into specific places. Uh, there are a couple of named prisoners, uh, but they're not, it's not necessarily like the most notorious criminals in 
in the galaxy type of situation. It's more of a um, kind of like a Guardians of the Galaxy thing of like, this is a leader of this group of prisoners that are here for this particular purpose. Or, you know, there's like uh, a bunch of them working together to do some something that I'm not going to spoil. And here's their leader, that type of thing. Um, so there's not a lot of specifics about like, oh, this person did this and this and this and this, because that's something that I think would be cool to leave open for GMs who um, can make those connections in their own games. Another question from Twitch chat from TRDG11. Will there be another big space station like Absalom Station with uh, maybe a different tone or atmosphere um, in the same uh, space or maybe a near vast or even the drift? Good question. We have, I mean, the Adari is a like a space station, but it's a, it's a world ship, um, and that exists. And I want to just keep spoiling near space. I know. Well, yeah, we, we, okay. we could. Yeah, there is there is a there is a big space station in the Vescarium as well. Um, they are a very militaristic people, so space stations, as, in terms of military, is a good good place for yeah. right. Uh, it's called the Conqueror's Forge. Well, I was right? going to say that. Oh yeah. shoot! Well, that's what it's called, and it moves around, right? Uh, that's the one doesn't have. That's the one that can kind of go where it needs to go. Yeah, yeah. We're still working on it though, so things could. Change. Oh, things could change. Things could change it might, so. The name yeah. might even change. Uh, another question from Twitch chat from Dungeon Novice: What is your favorite headcanon or unpublished fact? <laughs> <laughs> oh, how long have you got for Amanda's answer? Apparently. <laughs> Oh, you're all looking at me, so I yeah, guess well, I you just laugh. So clearly, you have something in mind. I do. Uh, so my favorite piece of headcanon: I have a planet that is also going to be in near space. Which again, we keep talking about near space, um, but that has a few pieces of, of lore that have been sprinkled throughout the hardcovers. Uh, almost every hardcover, not Armory, that we've published, but it's a planet called Dimalco, and it's a planet that um, is in near space and uh, has. Um, it had two civilizations uh, on it before, um, like about a hundred years before, and then there was this event called the Awakening in which uh, there were massive earthquakes and all of the um, oceans evaporated and there was all sorts of weather events and kaiju basically rose up out of these evaporated oceans, um, colossi we call them, and started destroying uh, these two civilizations and the entire planets in ruins. And so there's a lot that's revealed about Daimalco in near space, but uh, this is very much my setting of uh, like very uh, high adventure, um, like, you know, Colossi and potentially, potentially, potentially mechs. Uh, and uh, just, you know, like a very uh, like uh, epic type of, of stories and, and it's sort of an anime inspired planet. Like there's a lot of Evangelion in it. There's a lot of Attack on Titan um, in it. Um, there's an, a series called Knights of Sidonia that also played a role in um, the inspirations for that planet. And so I have a lot of headcanon about exactly where the Colossi came from, how uh, they ended up awakening at the time that they specifically ended up awakening, and uh, what is going on with the, the backgrounds and the histories of these two uh, broken nations that have had to come together and are largely huddling underground and are just kind of starting to um, create colonies back on the surface through the use of magical artifacts that they found when they you know hid underground and uh, can sort of like communicate and predict the movements of the Colossi now. So I have a lot, a lot of headcanon about all of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm secretly hoping that there might be like some way that there's an outlet for that um, in the future, but you know, who knows? 
headcanon? Do I have any headcanon? It's kind of, uh, sometimes I don't want to think too much about headcanon because it ends up spilling out into an adventure anyway, and it becomes less headcanon. And, and it becomes actual, real canon. It becomes actual yeah. canon. Um, well, the thing I'm thinking most about lately is, of course, Attack of the Swarm. And we uh, basically, uh, so this is unpublished, I guess, at this point then, um, talk about what happened to uh, the Sheeran um, and... Um, uh, where they came from and how they came out of the swarm and what happened in the like 80 some years before between uh, when uh, the egg gap ended and when the Sheeran showed up at the pack worlds so we have about an article that just describes at least a little bit about what's going on and uh, I, I think it was I think it was head canon for me that became canon like I said when that the uh, the Sheeran became independent from the uh, from the swarm at some point during the gap and kind of had a lot of struggles at this point but the gap uh, kind of got everyone all loopy, right? And so when it ended, everyone was kind of like waking up out of a dream, and, and uh, that gave the Sheeran a chance to actually physically break away from the swarm. And then they were kind of chased for about a decade or two um, uh, as they were sort of trying to, you know, they got the drift engine, build their own drift engine. By the time they built the drift engine, they were able to finally get away from the swarm, but the swarm have kind of been following them and, and, and chasing them a, a bit. Um, yeah, and I, I guess in terms of headcanon, headcanon, since if you look at all the swarm speak Sheeran, it's uh, my headcanon that... The Sheeran language is is a, just a, a, a updated version of that ancient language of the Kucharn, who used to be the swarm. So, yeah. And I don't really have much headcanon because I find that it's it's you know it's we we can tell more stories if you haven't already predecided everything. You know, if we have a really cool idea, then we can be like, oh, we can totally do that, and then I don't have to worry about. Well, no, I always thought it was going to be different, and. At the same time, because I'm creative director, if I really want it to be canon, I can kind of, <laughs> this is what we're doing. So it's the stuff I really want to do, I've tried to put in the setting already, so to make it real canon, so. Um, you mentioned earlier um, about like not wanting to use AI as much, um, or not necessarily that, I don't remember exactly what you said, um, but uh, I remember something about the mechanics having an AI, can have an AI cortex as part of their mechanic. I also have done scatter sh uh, skitter shot where there was sort of an AI that kind of took over a ship. Mm -hmm. um, was is there anything else that like I mean is there like a sort of a way you could kind of tie AI into like not necessarily ships but like even planets or anything like that? Or are you trying to avoid that as well? Well, it's it's mainly I mean the the thing with the mechanics exocortex as an AI is that that's that may be a little bit more towards the sapient thing because this is kind of our default pet class or you know it's like you have your pet pet drone or, or whatever or the exocortex but it's also technology that the mechanic themselves has created and they're the only ones that do it so it's not something that's going to take over it's more like a partnership and again it's the the player can tell the story of exactly what their character's relationship is with with the, the AI that they create um in terms of like in in terms of in other places it's i think we're mostly trying to avoid it but we obviously have a whole planet abalon which is made of up it's just populated by robotic creatures yeah. they created an ai that became one third of the god triune so that's we have played around with it a little bit but i don't know it's like it, if you get to an ai if you get an ai to a certain point does it become a god it's it's kind of those are kind of the questions yeah. i think it's fun to play with so yeah what we want to avoid with ai is mainly uh making them uh you can go down to the ai store and buy an ai we don't yeah. want that uh because that basically ends up sort of being a bit like slavery um so what we want to do is so we can have ai personalities that happen like oh we created this ai personality we've given it control of the ship oh it goes a, a bit crazy and you know, and, and, and because we it didn't get programmed quite right and takes everyone hostage. Or, you know, maybe there's a planet that's controlled by an AI, but it's not 
enslaved to the planet, right? It's just it, it's its own creature, and it can do its own thing, and it can be good or bad or what have you. Uh, I'm not clear on the point in uh, rule books. The drift engines, drift beacons, those are presented by Triune. Are those exclusive to the manufacturer of Triune, and or are they have they been reverse engineered by other agencies? Are they like a commercial market that the patent has been sold? I, I think we, we said that the, somewhere also in this the, the Drift article that's in AP number four, uh, talk about the, the priests of, of Triune uh, take these beacons and put them places. And, uh, and I think we, uh, and if we don't spell it out exactly, yeah, Triune has control over them. She, they, that's what uh, they, they're all made in Alluvion, basically, for the most part, I think, um, and, uh, which is their uh, home base in the Drift. And uh, program that way, and I think uh, they're probably got a little bit of divine protection. If uh, and I'm sure we could always tell a story about someone trying to steal one of them and break, crack it open, and and try to get the technology within. Uh, but for the most part, yeah, uh, it's probably too because it's got a little bit of divine ineffability, uh, and it's uh, they're probably too complicated to crack open and just photocopy the schematics. Drift engines themselves, though, everybody has, yes. because that was three years after the gap ended, Triune sent out a signal that sent out the basically the schematics and plans for drift engines to the galaxy at large. Now, A galaxy-wide Creative Commons license. Right, so, so anybody can create drift engines. I mean, that's why it even talks about, I think in the core rulebook, about how there's even, you know, pre-technological societies that they may have, like, cave paintings of these schematics, because they have no idea what it is, but they still received it. On the other hand, there's places like the Vescarium, which we have said did not, for whatever reason, did not get the signal. And so they did not have drift-capable travel until explorers from the packed worlds visited their solar system. And they're like, oh, that's great. Let's make our own drift engines. And then that's when the Vescarium attacked the packed worlds. As soon as they had that technology, they're like, hi, friends. Oh, you have interesting engines that we can go beyond? That's also why the Vescarium is limited to a, one solar system, is because they could not go beyond that until they had until they had uh, drift technology but so the engines are pretty much widespread it's yeah. but the the beacons, the beacons are, are proprietary tech so something that had come up uh, in my group for discussion was the idea of a lich on galerion once galerion disappeared having their phylactery there now being undestroyable <laughs> are these avenues that would be just uh, explored about galerion or the gap or is galerion missing and the gap more of a narrative device to be left undisposed unexplored for the sake of creating a new uh, narrative. That's the, I would say, is the main reason for it. And it's also to co sort of keep, the sort of meta reason is to keep Pathfinder and Starfinder separate so that, I don't know, if at some point they decide to totally do something with Galarian, or, or, or if somebody, after we're gone, decides they want to blow up Galarian in <laughs> Starfinder, you know, and it's like, but... You know, it's, yeah. we, we wanted to keep those kind of separate. I mean, that is an interesting idea that a lich has a phylactery on Galarian and is now out in the galaxy. So it's like, well, nobody can get to my phylactery. But we probably wouldn't tell that story because ultimately we want the PCs to win. <laughs> and if it's impossible for them to win right. because... Although we did, we have talked about uh, a little bit about exploring the gap a little bit, maybe even sort of doing something with Lost Galarian just a little bit, but we've, we've not found the right way to do it yet. Yeah. But, you know, if we ever needed to do something with that lich, and then we'd, we'd have an adventure that you could get that thing back and then right, so you could kill the, kill the baddie. But that would be a whole thing, yeah. and yeah, that it would be, be it would be yeah, it would be huge. But mainly Galarian is the playground for, for Pathfinder, and we get the whole rest of the galaxy. Yeah. So I think it's a pretty good trade. But. 
We have another question from Twitch user Twosider. With Starfinder Society electing a new uh, venture captain from among its players, would the core rulebook line ever integrate notable players into its lore? Hmm. That's an interesting question because at the time we were we were doing the core rulebook, which is where we first introduced the Starfinder Society and Luazi Elsebo, there was no actual organized play component yet. And so as they're moving forward and we're talking about a new first seeker coming in, I mean, we're not going to reprint the core rulebook just to, <laughs> yeah. just just to, mm. to to do these things. Um, it's you know never never say never, but I think the sort of there is there is a sort of disconnect between sort of the core of the game, which is in the core rulebook, and what's happening in the sort of living campaign world of both society play and, and our mm -hmm. published books. Um, so things are going to adventure paths, and society play are going to keep expanding the setting, and people are going to. There's going to be people that become famous, and there's going to be people that die, and, and that sort of thing. But probably in the core rulebook, it's going to kind of say, "With hey, here is just the baseline setting that everything that everything came from." Uh, we don't want to assume anything has happened because then people can't really then play through that themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's the same kind of thing. Those those scenarios, even as we get seasons down, you can still play some of those old scenarios. Someone who comes in two years from now, if we've changed and say, "Oh, the first secret is now this." then they might be confused by these early scenarios that they still might, whether they're playing them for society credit or not, they could just be playing them at home and everything. So I yeah. think we'll probably keep the core rule book. Yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's in the same way in that um, Pathfinder, you know, had 10 years of adventure path plots uh, that change in the ends of adventure paths. There are major things that happen in the setting, but they're not incorporated into any of the, of the lore or any of the campaign setting books that were published because we specifically... Uh, knew that players would uh, have different results, right, at the at the table at the end of those adventure paths, path, for example. So, you know, with second edition, they updated the setting to sort of have, uh, you know, the timeline go forward and have the decisions, you know, that happened be made and, and canonized. But um, they kind of did the same thing, and I think we're taking a bit of a cue from that and letting players play through what is the baseline setting. And then, you know, if you're in society, of course, you're going to be familiar with the storylines, but the, the the home base of the setting is going to stay the same for a while. I, I would say society is a bit more uh, nimble than the um, uh, our, the core line and the adventure path line because yeah. we're printing stuff out, so that's got to go out to a printer and, and be made the hundreds of copies of, yeah. whereas, you know, uh, society stuff is in PDF, so we can have a little more lead-up time and get it done before it gets released. So uh, if there were ever someone that we wanted to put into uh, you know a notable player that we wanted to put into an adventure path for say it would take a whole whole year to, to basically cycle through um and would have a bit of a less uh, of an impact in my yeah. opinion and now and then and honestly what we're doing with society is so unique uh doing it again would make the first time we did it less unique and <laughs> dilute the power of it i think yeah Jason makes a really good point um, in that, you know, there are monthly adventure paths that come out, um, but we only publish three hardcovers a year in the Starfinder line, and not all of them are campaign setting books. So if we try to kind of keep up with that stuff, um, it, it would be very, very difficult. And, uh, and you know, like he said, at the end of the day, it's probably better to kind of set to a beginning and then kind of let players go forward from there on their own. Another question from the Twitch chat from Shatreyu. Are there any canon um, ways to do time travel, either abilities or technology? Mm -hmm. Um, not canon 
Exactly. <laughs> um, there is. Uh, 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 we're going to talk a little bit about weird stuff in the upcoming threefold conspiracy um, uh, adventure path. That that being a uh, our sort of vaguely X Filesy stuff and and uh, mm -hmm. Fringe, the TV show Fringe. Um, so there's some talk about fringe type science and and granted in a science fantasy we, we had to have a lot of talk with my uh with the author uh leo glass one of our editors about what is who wrote the weird gear section by the of uh in in pathfinder so he's responsible for <laughs> giant skidding render gummies by the way I just <laughs> put the blame on him i was the one who made sure there was art of it but um uh, <laughs> he the, just the, encouraged i him. just encouraged mm. him uh, but anyway so so um you know we have artifacts that can do weird stuff and we have time dragons that exist in our setting right but um in terms of like no normal everyday, it's not going to be normal everyday time travel. And and what is what is fringe science in a science fantasy setting that has magic? Well, it's stuff that even scientists can't do in this in our crazy stuff, which might be you know time travel or moving through a black hole or you know just straight up teleportation via science only um, stuff that hasn't yet you know been made. So keep keep an eye out on stuff in the future, whether or not that's going to be you know full canon. It's not going to be you're not going to pop down to you know. Guns are us, and by time travel gun. Wouldn't it be time, time travel? Time or travel us? gun. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, right now we haven't really done anything with time travel, but we have talked about it. And I love time but, travel. Yeah. So hopefully I can get to do my time travel AP. But then the other like, thing we don't want people traveling back to the gap because yes. the gap is the whole thing. So we kind of need to figure out the best way to do that. We'll probably do it as some some sort of adventure path or, or adventure. Fingers crossed. That, yeah, if, if, if we ever get around And time travel is just really difficult to, oh, yeah. to do, right? I yeah. mean, uh, it takes a lot of sort of thinking and um, planning forward and figuring out how it's going to or work mechanically. Backwards. Or planning backwards. Time is a circle, right? It's a flat circle. <laughs> Um, that's not to say that we haven't ever done it. The Return of the Rune Lords Adventure Path right. has time travel um, in it, but that was something that specifically uh, James Jacobs, the creative director for Pathfinder, wanted to wait until later in the cycle um, of that game because yeah. uh, it is just so complicated and um, it's really easy to screw up, frankly. So we want to make <laughs> sure we do it right when we do it. Uh, there's a bit of fluff in Pathfinder about how elves adapt to whatever environment they're in. So like when the drow went below ground, they they adapted into purple skin, malevolent, horrible things. Mm -hmm. Are there any thoughts about having space elves adapt to their weird space environments? That's interesting. I don't think we really carried that part forward. In fact, that's a very old piece of lore from Pathfinder that isn't necessarily um, explored a lot recently. It hasn't gone away, but I, yeah. I don't know. What do you guys think? We haven't really done much with what we call the legacy races. I mean, they're in the core rulebook because they still populate the the universe and, and the galaxy and everything. But again, that's one of those things because those are, you know, elves and dwarves and halflings are so key to Pathfinder. And we have our own races that we really want to focus on that. So there could be, but I think it's going to take us a while to tell like an <laughs> elf-focused story just because we want to tell stories about Lashuntas and Vesk and, and everything. Yeah. Yeah, and so yeah. that's and then we haven't really done much with, with the drow. about aposte or the yeah. drow for that matter, yeah. and so you know that that would be something that we would explore. Like in in Pathfinder, we had the Second Darkness Adventure Path, which went a lot into like drow culture and history on Galarian. If we did something like that, is when we would probably do that, just because again we're, we're always trying to find this balance between like what do we bring from Pathfinder and what new things mm -hmm. do we want to create for Starfinder, and so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that said, if you really like that aspect of, you know, elves adapting to their environment, we kind of have something that does go back a ways that's sort of similar to that, and that's the Riforians and the Summerborn and Winterborn 
um, situation in which their genetics actually shift depending on um, whether that planet is in summer or in winter. You know, of course, it's currently in winter, and so they're sort of furry and they have kind of a, a very light kind of complexion to deal with <clears throat> to deal with all of that. Um, but the summer-born, you know, have got different physical traits. So that concept does exist. Um, it's just I don't like Rob said. I'm not sure that we're going to do a lot with the elves. And, and since elves are originally from Castrovel, I'd argue that all elves are space elves. <laughs> Just like goblins or space goblins. goblins they just have bubble helmets. They just have bubble they helmets. Are aliens. They, Elves are technically aliens. Yeah. Valerian, That's so. true. Yeah. Do we have any other questions? Any more questions? No. no All right. Well, we can wrap we, it up. There was, anyone say any final words? Any final secrets to mm, give out about final secrets. anything? <laughs> Probably stuff we can't talk about because we have <laughs> Always, always. <laughs> yeah. The, uh... yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. Well, we'll wrap up then. So thank you, everybody. And. Uh, We'll see you around the show. Yeah. Have a great show. Thank you for coming. And we're back here at Gen Con 2019 for Paizo Seminar coverage. I'm Jefferson J. Thacker from No Direction, also known as Param, and joined by Rob McCrary. Hi. Rob, it's always great to talk to you, and you just got done talking about some really nitty-gritty and fun details about the Pact Worlds. Yeah. And why are the Pact Worlds so special? Pact Worlds are special because they're sort of the, the heart of our setting. We have a whole galaxy to play with, but mm -hmm. this is the one solar system that is kind of the thing we've developed the most, and that's kind of, like I said, the center of our setting. Yeah. A good base, good base of operations. And, and, and the, a lot of the Pact Worlds began itself actually back in the Pathfinder Day in the Outer Worlds books, right? The Distant Worlds, the yeah. Worlds. yeah, it was Distant a Pathfinder Worlds. campaign setting written by James Sutter. Mm -hmm. um, he created the whole solar system that it was around Galarian, and so mm -hmm. when we were making Starfinder, it seemed that was a natural place to kind of start with. So when you, you had that book, how much fun was it to, to future cast some of this craziness? It was a lot of fun. I mean, there were so many cool ideas, and mm -hmm. Sutter was, has always been really good at just name-dropping stuff, and mm -hmm. so there was stuff that he had name-dropped that never went anywhere in Pathfinder. We were like, well, hey, we can do something with that and bring that into Starfinder. Oh, give us one. What was one little name-drop that just blew up? I knew you were going to ask me that question. I think it's the... Um, Erokaroi, it's this is something we actually got to later. It's mm -hmm. some kind of spiral winged creature on one of the gas giants, and we just now have started it up for Alien Archive 3. Ooh, so. Alien Archive 3, I can't wait to get in touch with that. You all have been teasing that since PazoCon with lots of fun pictures. There's some butterfly people, There's, there's there were space corgis. Not space corgis. I don't I'm think there's space corgis, but... There were things. There were things. I don't know. There were things, definitely. Were things. We, we, we showed the... There were giant showed, evil skittermanders. Yeah, the stridermanders right. that, that hunt that hunt skittermanders on Vesk 3. Yeah. Yep, yep. And you just got done teasing us about the near space book. That's correct. Yeah. So, that's so our what next, can you say about that? That's our next big setting book mm -hmm. that's going to be coming out in uh, March of next year. And this is going to give us details on the Vescarium, the home system of the, the Vesk race, and also a whole bunch of other planets. Mm -hmm. Plus everything we put in our books, there's going to be new material there for, for players as well. New Vesk starships, um, all sorts of cool stuff. And when can we expect that one? That should be in March of 2020. March. Oh, it's my birthday. Birthday present for myself. All right. Yes, yes, yes. Now, I, I mean, I want to know what the Vesk is like. I mean, the Vescarium has like been like this very near mystery. We've gotten tastes of it and teases of it and, and tiny six-armed furry creatures that don't belong there for some reason but do. Um, 
there's more than the vast game, right? There's more than Vescarium, the Vescarium, the inside of that narrow space, right? Oh yeah, there, there, there's a the significant portion of the book is going to be about the Vescarium since right. they're one of our core races. Right, right. But then we're going to get into we get into a whole bunch of other planets in your space that you can set an entire adventure or campaign on, or mm-hmm. or just visit as part of that. Now, um, did you ask James over here? Did you ask the question? I saw a question come up that you there's always a question you expect that you don't get. Was there? I don't think so. I mean, I tried to manage it at the beginning by saying you know, a lot of times we get questions about the gap and everything. And so right at the beginning, I was yeah. like, hey, we're not going to talk about the gap because that is one of our big central mysteries. Exactly. I, I almost thought that they would like trade spaces and, and just sort of cross promote with the Pathfinder people trying to get you all to tell them about Aridin and then ask the Pathfinder people about the gap. <laughs> I almost said that. I almost mentioned Aridin and they're like, oh, wait a minute. That's Pathfinder. That's <laughs> Aridin's really gone in Starfinder. Okay, so we're going to be taking a quick break from Starfinder topics for a while, but we will have you all back to talk about more Starfinder when. Um, I think we have a writing for Starfinder panel mm-hmm. uh, this evening. So, and the, also Starfinder stuff will be at the 2019 and Beyond stuff. right? Yeah, I'll be talking about I'll be talking about some of the Starfinder stuff as part of the 2019 and Beyond panel. And have you been? And how's your Gen Con been? It's been good. Yeah, a lot of fun. How's the excitement? You think you feel in the excitement for the space lasers? I am. I've had a lot of fans come up and talk about how much they, they love the game, the things that they like about it, and what they want to see. So it's, it's always good to, to, to meet people. And, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of stuff for Pathfinder 2nd Edition, but it's good to see the Starfinder people out there, too. Now, you mentioned that uh, we've, we've talked about the different roles, but you are the creative director for Starfinder. This thing is wild. In all the good ways, things are wild. How freeing is it to be working on Starfinder? I mean, it's pretty freeing. It's also weird as creative director. I have to be keep it from going too wild. So right. when our when our writers and the people on the team want to do really cool stuff, I'm like that's a cool idea, but maybe it's a little too far. So I kind of have to be the bad guy sometimes. Mm-hmm. But is it true you initially had hesitations about Morlamal? That's not exactly true. I didn't know they were going to be. I knew there was going to be an alien species, but uh-huh. I didn't know what the alien species. And I was surprised to say the least when when they when they first came out, but. People love them, so I love them too. And the Skittermanders, they were a big surprise hit too, right? Like they weren't expected to be. Yeah, well, once we got the art for them, we were thinking that these may be, and that sure enough, that's what happens. So. All right. Yeah. Thank, thanks, James, uh, for helping out. Uh, soon we're going to be going into the next panel, and I'll be handing you all over to Vanessa Hoskins to be running the stream for the next few hours. Thank you again, Rob. We hope to see you again soon, and we hope you have a great Gen Con. And we hope all you. you all are having a great Gen Con, whether you're here at the convention center itself watching us on your phones or tablets, or if you're home and getting to enjoy all the glory of Gen Con without the you know lines, expensive food, hotel room fights, and of course, step dodging all of the miniatures in the floor so that you uh, don't you know, end up having to pay for it. But we are going to have a good time. So remember, stay tuned. We've got lots of more content to come, and especially make sure you are here for 4 o'clock tonight, 4 o'clock this afternoon, Eastern time, because we're here at Indy, and it is Eastern, when the 2019 and Beyond panel will be hitting, and that's when a lot of the big news is going to be announced so until then, I'm Jefferson J. Thacker from No Direction, also known as Pam. I'm Rob McCreary from Paizo. And remember here, we con when you can't. And that was part of No Direction's 2019 Gen Con seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. If you'd like to find more great content like this, go to nodirectionpodcast.com. 
We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for making content like this possible. If you'd like to support the network and see that future content is created, you can do so at patreon.com slash nodirection, or click on the Patreon link at nodirectionpodcast.com.